listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Today, I'm going to begin with a little story. A sales clerk working at a store selling wallets was looking out the window, watching the people pass by. Soon, she saw a middle-aged man wearing a hat and a long coat come into the store. The man looked like he was in his 50s, and he walked straight towards the section that had all the women's wallets and began to look at a few of them. The sales clerk walked up to the man and asked him if he was looking for a wallet to give as a present for someone. The man smiled back at her and told her that he was looking for a gift for his wife and asked the sales clerk to recommend a good wallet. The sales clerk took out some of the wallets to show him. And the man chose a wallet that was simple and comfortable to use. After the man paid for the wallet, the sales clerk was about to gift wrap the wallet when the man stopped her. He told her that there was something that he had to do before she wrapped the gift. The man then placed $200 in the wallet and told the sales clerk she could then wrap the wallet. As she was wrapping the gift, the sales clerk asked the man if it was his wife's birthday, and she added that his wife should be very happy with this gift. That's when the man told the sales clerk that his wife lost her wallet a while back and that she'd been feeling down ever since. He was buying a new wallet for her to help her feel better. This is the end of our story. When I heard this story, all I could think about was how nice this man was to buy a new wallet for his wife to replace the one that she had lost. If it were me, I would have said, Oh no, where did you lose the wallet? You should have taken better care of it. How much money was in the wallet? But the man did not concentrate on the fact that his wife lost the wallet and the money that was inside the wallet. He concentrated on how his wife was feeling after she lost her wallet. He bought a new wallet and even placed $200 in the new wallet to comfort his wife who had lost the money, cards, and pictures all at once. When I heard this story, I thought to myself that this is true love. I began to think about if you truly love someone, you concentrate on their feelings and value them. We will continue our discussion after the first song.
There's a woman that we all know very well in Mark chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 26. It is the woman that broke an alabaster vial of perfume. When Jesus was having a meal at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster vial of very expensive perfume. She broke the vial and poured it over Jesus' head. How costly do you think that vial of perfume was? This is how the people around the table acted. Matthew chapter 26, verses 8 and 9 say, But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. In Mark, it tells us how expensive this vial of perfume really was. Mark chapter 14, verses 4 and 5 say, But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Denarii was the currency used for money back then. And one denarii was the wage for one full day of work. So, to save 300 denarii means that you will work 300 days without spending anything. Imagine the value of that money. That is why the disciples watching this were angry with the woman and even scolded her for breaking that vial of perfume. This is the kind of response that we normally have with the value of a broken vial of perfume. I think that this is the response that we have because we only look at the monetary cost of the vial of perfume and our greed gets in the way. They did not think about why this woman decided to break the vial or with what purpose she decided to break the vial of perfume. The disciples only thought about the value of the broken vial of perfume and that is why they acted that way towards her. But Jesus' response was different. Jesus knew exactly the value of the woman's actions. Matthew chapter 26, verses 10-13 to 13 says, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus, tis now. 
Next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Think Bigger, Part 1, based on Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Have you ever noticed how the past seems to be so much better than the present? I remember when I was a kid, my parents used to say something to the effect of, well, when I was a kid, and then they would go on to some explanation of how they bemoaned how bad my existence was in comparison to their existence in the past. You know, when I was a kid, man, it was good. We didn't have to lock the doors at night because there were no evil people in the world. And kids, they, they learned to drive when they were just eight years old on the farm. And parents didn't have to worry about where their kids would be. They could run wild and free because those kids were good kids. And Barney Fife was always on patrol in Mayberry. It was a good time, right? I mean, and and to be honest with you, it's not just my mom and dad. I do that too. You know, with my kids, I'm like, you won't believe what it was like whenever I was growing up. It wasn't like when you're growing up. Well, see, this is, I think, a, a common human reality. I don't think this is unique to anybody. In fact, Dr. Kerry Morwedge of Carnegie Mellon is a psychologist, and he did a study where he thought about this idea of why the past always seems so much better. And he did this by just using TV shows and movies, and he showed uh, those to a, a sample group of people. And what he found was that people consistently tested as preferring past movies and TV shows to present ones Because, he says, we have 
what he calls memory bias towards the past. We prefer the past. We remember it with a a glowing review. It's nostalgic. It's a good time. It's where we long for those good old days. And it's because our minds tend to operate kind of like, he says, a record store. And so in a record store, you can expect that when you go in, uh, if those existed anymore, kids, uh, they, would, they would have all of the hits from the old, right? The, the golden oldies. But you wouldn't expect to find like a really trash record from the 70s. No, no, no. But, but if, if you were to go in that same record store, you would find trash records from present day, current day, because the verdict's still out, right? Well, that's kind of how our memory works. So our memory keeps the good old memories. We tend to keep those more than we hang on to the good memories in the present. The present, we are thinking about both. Sometimes our good memories from the past, I bet you've experienced this, uh, they can lead us, they can lead us to experience what I would call nostalgic paralysis, right? A, a longing for the past of the way things were in such a way that it causes us to become frozen in our present so that we really can't live to the glory of God in the way that he wants to because we're so stuck. Well, we're back in our broken down house series in Haggai 2 this morning where Haggai addresses a people who remember a past, but catch this, it really was a lot better than the present that they were experiencing. Like, it's not just that they were thinking like, man, the past was awesome, but it really wasn't. No, it was a much better past than the present that they were living in. And so many of them were, I am sure, discouraged. Now just think about this. Haggai, who delivers this prophecy, and others who were with him probably were old enough to remember the glory of Solomon's temple that they had seen with their own eyes before Babylon destroyed it in 586 B.C. And and, and, uh, it was then that you'll remember also that they remembered being in the land and experiencing the city of God. And yet all of them had been cast out of Jerusalem. Boy, what fond memories they must have had. Fifty years later, Persian King Cyrus sent King Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem with a small remnant of people to rebuild the temple. Now you'll remember last week that enemies briefly delayed their work. But here we are 16 years later in the book of Haggai and they're still distracted from rebuilding the temple and preoccupied with building their own homes. I mean, there's still no fuss to move that bus and see a newly restored house for God, for God to meet with His people. Like, there's no, they're not moved, right? And then last week we saw in Haggai 1, God comes and speaks and God's people are moved. This week, we're in Haggai 2. We're just a month later, a few weeks, and we find that the work seems to have ceased temporarily yet Again, and it's in this moment of silence that Haggai visits him again and says, I I have a message for you again. God has another message for you before this overwhelming task before you. I want you to know that God encourages you this morning to be strong because I am with you and the best is yet to come. That's what Haggai is going to say this morning. We're going to look at that. He tells him to be strong because I am with you and the best is yet to come. Those are the encouragements. Now we see this first in in verses 1 to 3 where I believe this situation unfolds that Haggai is going to speak into. In verses 1 to 3. Let's look there again in your copy of God's Word. Haggai 2 verses 1 to 3. In the seventh month, important, the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Is it not as nothing in your eyes now? Now, don't miss the significance here of the timing of Haggai's three questions that he he asked in verse 3. It's easy to gloss over it. Now, verse 1 is more than a date stamp that just reminds us, oh, by the way, this took place on October 17th, 520 B.C. It, It means more than that. See, this is just a few weeks, you'll remember, after Israel got to work on the temple in chapter 1. Now, timing, it might not be everything, but I believe that it's something here. See, it's the seventh month, the same month of the Feast of Tabernacles that they would have been celebrating, and also uh, the month that you'll remember Solomon dedicated the temple to God. So you can imagine that they would have had all kinds of memories and thoughts that were going through, flooding their minds in this season. See, the Feast of Tabernacles, it celebrated God delivering Israel out of Egypt to live in booths. And they celebrated this with a nationwide camping trip. In this feast, what they were trying to do is remind them of that time in life when they had gone into the desert, that horrible desert, and been banished there by God because of their sin of not obeying God and entering into the promised land. And he says, you know, I'm going to send you to the wilderness once a year for a camping trip so you can remember that disobedience, but also God's faithfulness in sending you back home into the land and how I provided for you and how I was good to you. And year after year, I'm going to remind you with a camping trip of just what that's like. See, we, we see here that God loves to use tangible examples to remind the people of God of what they are called to. And the camping trip during the Feast of Tabernacles did this. They were reminded of their living in tents in the great and terrible wilderness where they wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience. And it caused them to long for their homes, right? Like, it's time to get home. Like, we, we don't like this. This is what disobedience means. We want to be obedient to God because it's good to be obedient to God and in God's house, with God, in His presence, worshiping God. It's exactly the thing that they were reminded of in this season as they looked over at this dilapidated temple that was an embarrassment compared to the former glory of Solomon's temple. And not to mention that, it is the seventh month that the temple of God was dedicated by Solomon. And so I'm sure they're thinking to themselves, Solomon's temple, it is gone. We will never see anything like that ever again. And so we've been told to go to work, but how discouraging. We will never see anything like what God has done in the past. It is a broken down house of God. And they feel like they will never meet with God in the way that they have met with in the past. They are hopeless. It is hard to be hopeful even though they have heard from God. And in verse 3, God asked them three questions. Three questions to just help them see where they're at and help them know that He knows where they are. He says, one, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Two, is it not as nothing in your eyes? And of course, uh, He also asked them uh, there if they really understand where they're at. Commentator Bruce Walkie says Israel's two great problems are The past seemed incomparably better than the present. And the present seemed much less worthwhile. Right? Like, does our work really matter if it's never going to be like that was? Like, does anything we do matter if it's not like that? Catch this. Haggai doesn't ignore their sadness. He steps into their season of sadness with them. 
that season that forced Israel to consider just how much things had changed. And he does this, and he speaks God's word so that he can help them fight back that nostalgic paralysis, right? Of like just becoming stagnated because of the past and the way that it fights with their hearts. And that's where past victories have caused them to freeze up before present challenges. Have you ever experienced this kind of feeling? Have you ever experienced this kind of feeling of like the past glories will never compete with the present experiences of your life? And you think maybe it just doesn't even matter anymore. The best days have passed. Everything from here is just going to kind of throttle out at neutral or maybe even slightly decline or maybe rapidly decline. But it can't be like it was. See, good past memories can immobilize our hands and seize our hearts looking to the future. You're moved. You're moved by the past in ways that cause you to become just immobilized. Could be something that's more spiritual. Maybe it's past sins that you, you think that if you were to talk to your younger self, your younger self would have thought that your older self would be further along spiritually than you are right now. You remember the excitement that you had when you were at, at a youth camp or a college camp, and you don't know if you could ever feel that way about God again. Don't know if God does that for you anymore, if He does that at all anymore. Or maybe it's that you remember the glory days uh, of your church. Glory days when your church had a thousand people and everyone was happy and new converts were baptized weekly and, and you always felt the Spirit's presence. And you're immobilized and you don't know what to do. And what happens in those moments? What happens? Our hearts begin to rehearse all of the positives of the past. And there are many. And all of the negatives of the present. And there are more. And the problem is, is that we're talking to ourselves more than we're listening to God. Right? We're talking to ourselves a lot about what's wrong in the world, not listening a lot to God and His promises. So God, catch this, He might be on the move and yet we are stuck. Our hearts are stuck. And so our hands are stuck. So please hear me, some of our greatest problems came from being, and come from being, some of our greatest problems come from being slow to listen to God and quick to listen to ourselves. Slow to listen to God and quick to speak to ourselves. And notice here that in this moment, in this reality, God interrupts their conversations with themselves and He speaks. And what does God say when He speaks? Well, look at verse 4 where He tells them, be strong because of God's presence, your presence, and your future. That's what He tells them. I know how you feel right now. The darkness setting in. But be strong because of God's presence and your future. Look what He says in in verse 4. There what He says at that first half of of verse 4. This is what He tells them, how He responds. He says, yet now... I know what it looks like, but be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Just just hear this. He's speaking to a, a king who has no throne, to a priest who has no temple, and to a small Remnant whose total numbers are fewer than the workers who built on Solomon's temple. They didn't look, they just didn't look uh, weak. They, they felt weak and helpless 
standing before God's broken down house, right? His temple, where he met with him. And that, that temple that, that should have been a mark of glory when built, because it was torn down, reminded them of failure. Failure spiritually, politically, militarily, and financially. And so when they saw this temple, it didn't bring them hope. It brought them despair. And what does God say? God tells them to stop listening to themselves and start listening to His promise. He says, and God tells us this weak people, He tells them something that you and me need to hear today as well. What does He tell a people that, are, that feel hopeless before what seems to be a broken world that, that, that there's not going to be any change that's going to come into? He gives them two words that are so important that we need to hear today too. Be strong. Those are the words. That's a message that God has for you and He has for me. Be strong. That's what God's calling us to as God's people. Is that you? Do you need to hear that today? Do you feel small, useless, helpless, and maybe hopeless? I mean, let me just tell you, I can resonate with those feelings depending on the time of the day one way or another. Right? And here, uh, we hear God's voice coming into that, that disillusionment, and you hear the voice of God Himself saying, be strong. Be encouraged. You don't have to be spiritually yoked to be strong for God. Isn't that encouraging? Don't have to. Don't have to bench a lot to be strong for God. Now, even great men and women of God from the past, they needed to hear this too. That encourages me, right? I'm not alone in this. Nothing uncommon to man under the sun. See, Moses told Israel to be strong and courageous when he wouldn't be able to enter into the promised land with them. And you'll remember that God appointed Joshua leader of Israel. And he told him to be strong and courageous. And likewise, David told Solomon to be strong and courageous when he took the throne over Israel. Catch this. When God's people face a great change in leadership or geography that makes them feel small and incapable and they want to freeze, God says, be strong. And that encouragement? I get that it's fearful, but I want you to know words coming from up top, be strong. See, maybe you're thinking here, Pastor, that sounds a lot easier than it is to do it. Right? I mean, I, you just told me to be strong and I feel weaker every time you yell it. And, and I'll be honest with you, like, I know sometimes that's how it feels in your prayers when you're pursuing God. And you're like, God, I know you want me to be courageous right now, but I feel like I'm getting increasingly fearful before the task that you have before me and us. And yet, uh, what, we, uh, what we know in our hearts is, is that our hearts will lie to us. You know, they'll tell us things like, well, great, you tell me to be strong and I feel like you're telling me to pull myself up by my boot straps, right? Or my shoe laces. And yet here, God says be strong but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say just do it in and of yourself. I'm not asking you to do the impossible. He says be strong because of this. There are two realities for us today that, that should empower us, encourage us to be strong in God. One is God's presence. And two is their future hope. He says these are the things that ought to mobilize you to be encouraged and moved. Right? So we're going to look at that first one. That first one is, he says, be strong now because of God's presence. Look again with me in verse 4 at what he says. Verses 4 and 5. He says, yet now be strong. And then he goes on. Notice where he begins saying, work. In the second part of verse 4. Work, for I am with you. 
declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So be strong. Don't be afraid. Now catch what he's saying here. This is, I think, so encouraging and encouraging for us. Did you catch what he said? Be strong and work because I'm with you. In fact, I was with you before the temple, right? I led you into eat out of Egypt. Like I was with you then. And I'm still with you. And who are you, God, who, who tells me to be strong and to be courageous? Who, who are you? How should I think about you? Well, he tells you, I'm the Lord of hosts, right? Yahweh Sabaoth. I, I, I'm the great God, all powerful. That's the God who is with you. So Israel is working through God's strength. Now catch this. I think this is so important. Right here we see in the Old Testament, just like the New, God's good news to His people has present implications, not just future. In other words, it's not just like hope for the future before the judgment seat of God. It's hope for today and how we live our lives. Right? You, you live today because I'm with you and in me. And in the future you have your great hope when you're going to be with me more. So here, we see this great promise. It, it, it's, it's that Israel is not called to be strong because they are strong or how much they can bench press. They're called to be strong because their God is. Right? So this reminds me a lot of um, the way that uh, I've told you before stories about like me and, and Jack and, and doing workouts and using like pull up bars and that kind of thing. And it's so fun um, to try to work out in my house because I have like this, these three little boys who anytime I want to exercise, they're like, we want to exercise too. And if you ever tried to like do exercises for four little boys, um, it's, it's entertaining. I got to say that uh, a little bit frustrating at times, but I love it. I'm sure I'll look back in the past and long for those days. But when I was spending time with Jack, I love it, but we, it always comes time to the pull-up bar. And when he comes to the pull-up bar, he comes over to it. It's so funny. Like, he's like, can I go first, Dad? And I'm like, sure, go ahead. And he just looks at me like, ah, come on, Dad. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I can't do it if you don't help. And I'm like, what? Oh, all right. So I come over to little Jack, right? And I pick him up, and he grabs on. And he loves it. I mean, he can do pull-ups. He likes to do, like, flip-arounds. And then, like, he'll do this thing where he, like, puts his legs between his arms and he's almost going to fall and break his head if I'm not there. And I'm sitting there and I'm helping him all along the way and then I put him down and he loves it. And he, he loves to do it. Now, here's the deal. Jack can't do that if dad's not there. It's just a reality. If I'm not there, if I'm not, if it's not dad's muscle helping him, that job is impossible. He can't even reach it. And yet here, uh, we find the same kind of picture with God and his people. He says, look, I'm calling you, who you don't even have authority over yourselves, Persia does, to go and to build a temple that I want to compare with the glory of Solomon's temple. And you're looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way. We don't have the resources. We don't have the people. We don't have what it takes. And yet God says, I want you to go do this and catch this. I'm not calling you to do it because you can do it. I'm calling you to do it because you, your God can, right?
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. We have been studying Matthew chapter 5 through 7 about Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount. And now we come to our last lesson. During our last episode, we learned about the wide and narrow gate. Jesus said the gate that leads to destruction is wide, the way is broad, and there will be many who enter through it. The gate that leads to life is small and narrow, and there are few who find it. Jesus also tells us to be aware of the false prophets, that we will know them by their fruits. He also tells us that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of God will enter into his kingdom. Jesus also taught us about the ones that listen to his teachings and act upon them and those that hear his words and do not act upon them. We will be learning about this lesson today. In the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught about the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, And the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell. And great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. During our last lesson on the Sermon on the Mount, we studied the difference between the ones that only call out, Lord, Lord, and the ones that do the will of God. Similarly, in this lesson, Jesus is talking about the difference between those that only hear his words and do nothing and the ones that hear and act upon his words. Jesus compares both to a man that is building a house. He tells us that the man who hears his words and acts on them is like a wise man that builds his house upon a rock. The man who hears his words and does not act on them, is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. During the hot summer, the sand near the ocean becomes very hard in Galilee. From the outside, the sand looks hard enough to build a house on it. But when you build a house on top of the sand, there is not enough support for the pillars, and it will not hold when it becomes windy or when it rains. 
That is why, even though it's harder, you must dig the ground and build a house on the rocks. This way, the winds, rain, and flooding will not be able to bring the house down. The similarity between the two kinds of men that Jesus describes is that they both listen to his lesson. The difference is that one person learns and applies it to their life, and the other does not. The one that acts upon his teachings is like the wise man that builds his house on the rocks, and he will not waver even though he is faced with distress and hardships in his life. The one that hears Jesus' words and does not act upon them is like the foolish man that builds his house on the sand, and he will not be able to stand all the distress and hardships in his life. We all listen to Jesus' words and teachings, but if we hear Jesus' words and the only thing that happens is that we understand and are moved by his words, then we are just like the foolish man that built his house on the sand. That house will be destroyed as soon as it becomes windy, rains, or if there is a flood. This does not mean that the basic lesson is for you to listen, but that it would be better for you to apply Jesus' teachings in your life. He tells us that the ones that act upon his words and the ones that do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are only two roads you can take. It's either the road of acting upon his word or just hearing Jesus' words and doing nothing with them. There is no in-between. To summarize what Jesus is teaching us in the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, he basically says, Worship materialistic things or worship God. Enter through the wide gates or enter through the narrow gates. Bear bad fruit or no fruit or bear good fruit. Not act upon Jesus' teachings or to act upon them. Fall or have life. Be thrown into hell or enter the gates of heaven are the only two choices. There is no middle ground. How do you think the people who were listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount reacted? Verse 28 and 29 says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The scribes taught the people by the words that were passed down or by using the teachings of the rabbis. Jesus, on the other hand, taught the words with his own authority. He did not use the translations from anyone else, but taught by using his own words. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught about who are blessed, call the ones that follow Jesus the light and salt of the world, and who will be the least and the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In addition, he told us that if we are not better than the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus points out the wrong translations of the commandments by the Pharisees and teaches us the correct meaning of them by saying, But I say to you, He tells us not to be hypocrites and do not follow the ways of the Gentiles and teach us how we should be. Jesus tells us that God is our Father in heaven and teaches us what God is like. He taught us which roads leads us to our fall and which road leads us to our life. On Judgment Day, Jesus will say to those who call out, Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Depart from me. 
because he has the authority to do so. Who else can say these words? No one can without God's authority. This is why all who listened to Jesus' sermon were amazed. Not only the Sermon on the Mount, but there are many examples in the Bible where people are amazed by Jesus' teachings. Sadly, not all the people that listened to his words became his disciples. There were people who listened and decided to live by them and act upon them. There were also people who listened, were amazed and moved by them, but decided not to act upon them. Jesus came as God's word in the flesh. He is the life and the salvation and taught many crowds and disciples. Even after 2,000 years, Jesus is still teaching us the same words. He teaches us that even though we live in this world, we must be separate from the world. We should not follow the ways of the world, hypocrites, or the Gentiles, but follow the perfectness of God. He teaches us to enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We are not able to act upon Jesus' words and live according to God's will on our own. We must let go of our own ability and judgment and live believing in Jesus who tells us, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we finish our lesson on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I pray that you all, along with myself, will live according to the will of God and not follow the ways of the world to enter the kingdom of heaven. This concludes our series on the Sermon on the Mount. I thank you for listening and God bless. This is the air I breathe This is the air I breathe Your holy presence Living in me This is my daily This is my daily bread Your very
many of you are hungry for God? Are you hungry for Him? If one saves a full day's wage of 300 days without spending anything, then you have 300 denarii. The vial of perfume was worth that much. As the disciples said, it could have been sold to help the poor or could have been more useful in other places. But that was what the disciples and the others thought. The woman did not believe that she wasted the expensive vial of perfume at all. She used this very expensive vial of perfume on the place that she believed was most important in her life. As I read this in the Bible, I thought about where I place my value in life and where I should be placing my values. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart today? I hope that all of you will spend the next week seeking the value of God's kingdom and pursuing love rather than the wealth of this world. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. You never change. You are the God you say you are when I'm afraid. Still my beating heart You stay the same When hope is just a distant thought You take my pain And you lead me to the cross Where love is this That you gave your life for me
Oh